We have been intentional about praying for our leaders since the pandemic began and before, but we've really been, been intentional for the past six months, making sure every Sunday we pray together as a church for the leaders of this country. And now I would add something else we need to pray for, something that you know about, <laughs> something that is all around us, and that is the election that's coming up. There, there is, well, how do I want to say this? There are many things that a Christian should be praying for, of course. Why would we think that the election would be something we would not be praying for? I'm, I'm not really concerned about where you fall in the political spectrum, if you're Republican or Democrat. I'm concerned about praying for the integrity of our country through this election cycle. We need to be praying for the candidates. We need to be praying for the people. And one more thing I would make sure that you remember. There is very strong reason to believe that Christians should be the most active voters. Why would we think that we would not vote? I don't know if you have voted in the past. I assume many of you have. I've also heard Christians say things like, well, my vote doesn't count anyways. There could be, I don't know, that's very frustrating to me. Our vote matters, and voting as a Christian matters. So let's go to God in prayer, and if you haven't already begun to get educated about the issues of this election, I hope as an informed Christian, you will be an informed voter. Would you stand and we will pray together. Lord God, as we have over the past many months, we stand together, we pray together for the leaders of this country. I pray for our President Donald Trump, that you would give him wisdom to know how to lead this nation. I would ask that he would submit to you, that he would recognize that you are over him. I pray, Lord, for our Vice President, Mike Pence, as he has led the task force against COVID-19 and as he has important duties in this country. Both our President and Vice President, they need your wisdom. I know that both of those men have made the public declaration that they are followers of you. I pray that they would turn to you for every decision, for every word that they speak, that it would be informed, by the wisdom of Almighty God. I pray for our Congress that needs to make decisions about the laws of this country. I pray for the Supreme Court that needs to make decisions about the Constitution and about how things fit together. I pray for the three branches of our government. We need to bend our knee in reverence to you. God, I pray for Governor Walls in Minnesota, that you would give him wisdom to know the right way to move forward. I pray for our school. I pray for the school board, for our superintendent, for our principal, Mr. Kep and Mr. Glenn. God, they need wisdom from you to navigate this crazy, crazy time. Lord, I ask that your hand of blessing and wisdom and discernment would be upon the leaders of this church, our pastors, our board of trustees, God, we need you to know what the next step is. And we want our step to be only where you want us to go. God, it is our desire that people would be pointed toward you and that they would submit to you. 
in this community, in this state, in this country, in this world. We want to lift you up, Lord. We love you. We know that there are many people that are hurting with COVID-19, but also with various sicknesses and diseases and surgeries that have happened this week, Lord, and people that are dealing with all kinds of stuff that we've been praying for. God, we pray for intervention. And Lord, for our seniors who are getting ready to start college, Lord, there's a couple of them here today. May they always turn toward you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, last week we focused on the story of the woman who washed and anointed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. She displayed worship, adoration, and love for Jesus. And this was in contrast to the Pharisee who wanted Jesus to perform. He, he was with Jesus only to get something from him. And I challenged you last week about what Christianity really is. And I challenged you about your walk with Christ. How much time did you spend with Jesus this week? Did you worship, adore, and simply love Jesus? The challenge I laid out for you was 30 minutes a day. To carve out 30 minutes a day of unhurried time. To just be still. To listen. Maybe to journal what you heard God say to you. I'm not going to make you raise your hand. I'm not going to try to embarrass you or make you write something down. I'm just asking you, between you and the Lord, did you do that? Were you able? Were you able to take seriously the challenge that I gave you last week? Or, as I'm guessing some maybe did, did you just forget? (laughs) Did, Did you forget the moment you stepped out of the sanctuary? You may have. I know that when I have asked people this week how it was going, they said, oh, I forgot about that. I didn't remember to do that. The busyness of life, it just overtook me. And it overtook me almost immediately. Now, that's something that pastors, I guess, have to deal with. There's a good chance that as soon as you step out this door, you forget everything that I say. (laughs) I know that because I haven't always been a pastor. I have also, for much of my life, sat where you're sitting, and I know that phenomenon does occur. I wish it didn't, but it does. So I'm reminding you again, how is your relationship with Jesus Christ? Not how is your Christianity going. I'm asking about your relationship with Jesus. Are you taking time? Well, this morning I want to look at a passage of Scripture that you're probably familiar with. And because of that, it's even more dangerous that as soon as we get done today, you're just going to walk out and this is all just going to be another sermon that you promptly forget. This this parable is one of the most recognizable parables of Jesus. If you're acquainted with church, you've likely heard this parable. In fact, the final in-person service that our church had before COVID-19 shut down everything That final service, we had a guest speaker, we had Angela Bray, our camp program director, and she spoke on this parable, the parable of the sower. 
I have no desire to bore you this morning. I hope I'm not ever boring to you, although I probably am sometimes. I don't want to bore you, but I want you to look. And to look deeply at a parable that you think you already know. This is one of the things about preaching all the way through a book of Scripture. Sometimes you hit Scripture that nobody has even looked at in maybe ever, and sometimes you hit Scripture that people could practically recite from memory. Today is one of those days. But I want us to be open to what the Holy Spirit has for us in a parable that is familiar to us. You know that happens by asking, what are we supposed to do before we read Scripture? Pray. We pray because we need the Holy Spirit to guide us. So let's pray together. God, we open your word today to a passage we've read before. In fact, to a passage that we've talked about even this year in this church from this pulpit. God, give us something new and fresh. May our hearts and our minds be open to receiving what you have for us. And may you speak to us in a way that we cannot do on our own. We need you, Holy Spirit, to speak. So speak. Your servants are listening. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please open to Luke chapter 8. We're going to be in Luke chapter 8 today. We have been carefully working our way through the Gospel of Luke throughout 2020. And now let's continue in expectation, seeking what the Lord has for us. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce. 
crop. The parable of the sower. <coughs> Excuse me. A parable you have heard before. You know, preaching a sermon can be a tricky thing. A passage like this that has been the subject of thousands upon thousands of sermons is sometimes the most difficult to bring alive. Even now, after reading that, I can feel in this room, can you feel it? Almost a tiredness. Almost a, you know, we've heard this. We're just going to settle in and endure another sermon about the parable of the sower. Can you feel that? I want you to stop and to try to get back into hearing from the Lord. Yes, I know you've heard it. But mentally, come back right now, even if you're at home on the live stream. Listen, the Lord has something for you this morning. You know, there are so many rich and powerful perspectives that could be illuminated from this parable. And it would be, be possible, I think, to preach on this one parable for many weeks and glean valuable perspectives each week. But I want to start with context. So often when we hear a parable like this, we, we skip the context. And I've told you over and over, we must look at the context. Well, look at the entire first paragraph. The entire first paragraph, which introduces the parable of the sower, it's important, but it's often ignored. Well, it's probably ignored because the Gospels of Mark and Matthew, which also record the parable of the sower, they do not mention the women in this story that Luke does. So if you go look up the parable of the sower in Matthew and Mark, it has nothing about these women. The women who are named in this passage in Luke, they don't show up in Mark or Matthew's gospel actually until the crucifixion. It's not until the crucifixion that Mary Magdalene and Joanna make it into the story. So look at the first paragraph again. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, it's significant that Luke mentions these women in connection with these parables. And remember... In Matthew and Mark, these women are not mentioned. Now, this is very odd. It's very odd that Luke mentions them at all. Because it would be very odd for a group of women to be following around a rabbi in the time of Jesus. That's not what women did, you see. They weren't supposed to be traveling around. They were supposed to be at home, doing the things of home. Now, I'm not trying to get into... a a debate here about what we should or shouldn't be doing regarding women. As I've already mentioned, we're in a different time than 2,000 years ago. But we're looking for context. What was the context of this? The context was, this was not what women did at the time of Jesus. Men followed teachers around. Women stayed at home. And moreover, it would be extremely exceedingly odd for a woman to be supporting a man at this time. 
But look again at verse 3. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now hold on a second. These women were supporting Jesus and the twelve disciples out of their own means. Have you ever wondered this? Have you ever wondered, how did Jesus and the disciples fund their ministry? Well, I mean, Jesus, you know, the one who is fully man and fully God, the one through whom and by whom all creation came into being, this this Jesus who could turn water into wine, this Jesus who could take a couple fish and some loaves of bread and feed 5,000 people, did he need someone to fund his ministry? Well, in some senses, no. I mean, Jesus could create out of nothing. But he did have people fund his ministry. And he actually depended on these people for his physical needs. Like the very energy that Jesus' body needed to go and perform miracles and to preach came from the sustaining work of a group of women who out of their own money paid for the food, paid for the lodging, paid for the ability for Jesus to do his ministry, for the 12 disciples to do what they needed to do. And, you know, it's amazing to me because my guess is some of you and, and me, you probably haven't given much or even any thought to the fact that Jesus' ministry on earth was sustained by a group of women. Out of the money of their own pockets. One translation even says, these women, out of, the, out of their own pockets, allowed Jesus to minister. Now, why do you suppose Luke put this little detail in his gospel right before the parable of the sower? Do you suppose that this might be on purpose? And yet, this is exactly the kind of context that we skip. We just breeze right over it. Don't skip it. It matters. Here we have a group of women going completely countercultural, doing something nobody would even expect them to do. In fact, doing something that most people would say they shouldn't do. And Jesus, who did not need them to do this because he can create from nothing, Jesus, who did not need them to, put himself in a position where he needed them to do it. Did you get that? Jesus, who did not need them to support him, not only allowed them to support him, but placed himself in such a position where he needed their support for the ministry to happen. Does that sound familiar to why we take an offering? Does that sound familiar to what I say every time we we receive our tithes and offerings? To think that God needs our money is bad theology. He desires our heart. But he places us in such a situation where we are dependent upon these gifts, not because we need them, but because the dependence itself means something. The dependence itself has value. Even for Jesus, who we know didn't need it, and yet placed himself in a position to need it. There is huge significance in this little passage of context that we skip over. It's why the church does what it does. And it's so misunderstood 
by people outside the church. And by the way, it's very misunderstood by people in the church. People who have thought that preaching the gospel should be something you make money from and that you have exaggerated extravagant lifestyles from. These prosperity gospel preachers who have limousines and jet planes and they misuse all of that because they've lost sight with this principle. It's why we do what we do. And it's misunderstood. We don't need money. We have God. But God has placed us in a position of dependence. Because he did. Again, our example is Jesus, is it not? Do you see that? And when I, when I preach about and teach about tithing, it's about a position of dependence. It's about recognizing the correct place to be. And the correct place to be is recognizing that it's not about us, is it? And yet, we have a part to play, don't we? It's that weird in the middle there. And these women give us an example of what this means. It's so powerful, and yet so easily skipped. All right. I'm going to go very quickly through this parable because you already know it. So Luke 8, 4 through 8 says, While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town to town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow a seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. All right, so Jesus is preaching to a large crowd. He presents his teaching in a short story that his audience will be very familiar with. Farming. He's from a farming society. Specifically, it's a story about a farmer who's planting his field. The farmer's walking in his field and he's throwing or casting seed. That's what farmers did back then. They had a satchel with seed and they would walk and they would throw and they would walk and they would throw. And that's how it would be planted. They would just throw everywhere and then the stuff that would grow would grow. So what are the four types of soil? Again, very quickly because you know this. The hard soil on the path the seeds don't grow on the hard soil. The birds just come and take the, take the seed. Then you've got the rocky soil. The seeds start to grow, but when the roots try to grow down, they hit rocks and they stop growing and they die. Then you've got the weedy soil. The seeds start to grow. They start to put roots down, but then other things, other weeds, grow up quicker than the seed and it chokes out the seed and they die. And of course, the fourth soil is the good soil. That's the soil that there's no rocks, there's... There's no birds, the, the roots go down, and they grow and they produce a crop. Now, of course, Jesus is preaching about a lot more than farming here, isn't he? He tells the crowd this parable to illustrate an important truth about the kingdom of God. And the disciples, they don't understand what Jesus is trying to teach them. But thankfully, Jesus gives them an explanation. So in verse 11, we have Jesus saying, this is the meaning of the parable. Now, I... I am so thankful when Jesus does this. I kind of wish he would do it more often when he does parables. Wouldn't that be nice? And now I'm going to explain exactly what the parable means. In every single parable, someday I'm going to go to the editor in charge of the Bible, that's God, and say, God, why didn't you do that? And God's going to say, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? That's a little joke from the book of Job. Did you get? Okay. So here we go. Jesus is going to explain the parable. We're going to go right through it. Here we go. The seed is what? The Word of God. Okay, so 
when you're casting seed, the seed in this parable is the word of God. And now verse 12. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. Okay, so the first kind of soil is the hard soil. The hard soil represents people who hear the good news of God's word, but their hearts are hard, and so the, the, it just like bounces off. Like the, the word of God, it just goes boink, it bounces off. And when that happens, it gives opportunity for the devil to come. It goes, boink, and the devil comes and just goes, and takes it away. Never even gets a hearing. Never even starts. It's just hardness of heart. Now, by the way, when Jesus preaches this in Luke 8, there are already, in the previous chapters before this, already examples of all of these kind of soil. So here's an example of, a, of the hard-hearted soil. It is the people of Jesus' hometown, the people in Nazareth. Jesus said to them, do you remember? In your hearing, this passage is fulfilled. And the people of Nazareth were like, isn't that Joseph's son? Who does he think he is, God? And Jesus is like, well, I'm fulfilling this passage. And the people are like, really? And then they grabbed Jesus and wanted to throw him off a cliff. Okay? That is what hard-heartedness sounds like. Someone who hears the gospel and is like, that's stupid. I don't want to believe anything about that. By the way, this soil, if you want to notice something interesting, this is the only soil where the devil comes and steals the seed. The rest of the soil, there's no talk about the devil. See, some Christians, they think that the devil is behind everything bad that happens. The devil made me do it. Whenever it's sin, it's the devil made me do it. Whenever something bad happens, that's the devil. The devil's everywhere. The devil's everywhere. It's all about the devil. This is the only one where the devil's involved. Now, is the devil involved? Yes, the devil's involved in this one. The devil steals away the gospel. But in the other kinds of soil, the devil's not involved. It's just you. You've got to find a balance here. The devil's not involved in everything, but the devil does have power to take the gospel away from people. All right. Next verse, verse 13. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they will fall away. So the second kind of soil is the rocky soil. So what is the rocky soil? According to Jesus, people who hear and receive the good news of God's word, so it gets to them. It doesn't bounce off. It gets to them. But the good news does not go in deep into their heart. The good news, it doesn't take root. When difficult times come, they don't rely on God's word because it has not taken root. So this idea of not taking root, here, here's the, the thing about this type of soil. We know about rocks and soil. Mr. Shook, how much do you know about rocks and soil? Nothing. Oh, you're on the sand. That's right. Sorry, I forgot about that. You know about little rocks, lots of little rocks. A lot of you know about rocks. I just dug one out of my yard the other day. There's rocks everywhere. Here's the thing about rocks. When you plant seeds, the rocks are there before the seeds are. Think about that for a second. Are there things in your life that were there before that make the gospel not take root? That's what Jesus is saying. So what's the example from Luke? It comes from the story right before. The story of the woman who was at the house and, and she... 
anointed Jesus' feet with perfume and her tears. Remember that? Think about the Pharisee. The Pharisee in that story had preconceived notions before Jesus got there that did not let the gospel take root. Now, the Pharisee was willing to invite Jesus in, right? He was willing to have Jesus come. He wanted to hear from Jesus. He wanted Jesus to perform. He wanted to get something from Jesus. But the Pharisee's preconceived notions blocked the gospel. Do you see that? So when the Pharisee sees that woman, that sinful woman, if, if he knew who was anointing his feet, he would. That's a preconceived notion. That's a rock that was in his heart before the gospel got there. He wanted to hear the gospel, but he didn't want to hear the gospel enough to clear the rock. What happens, farmers, when you plant and there's rocks? It doesn't work. That's the second kind of soil. Now the third kind of soil, verse 14. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. So this is the third kind of soil, the weed-infested soil. These are people who hear and receive the good news, so it doesn't bounce off. It goes in, and it even takes root. Do you see that? Because there's not rocks, there's not preconceived notions, so it takes root. Okay? And then, the problem is, there's a failure of priority. You see, it takes root, but they allow other things to take root in their heart as well. And a lot of times, these other things, they grow faster than the gospel. And they choke out the gospel. So, Jesus even gives examples. The examples he gives are very interesting. He gives two examples, or well, three, I guess. These other things that can, that can choke out the gospel from, from taking root of, from maturing are worries and riches and pleasures. I kind of put riches and pleasures together. And that's amazing to me because worries can choke out the gospel. Now, we don't usually think about this idea this way, but this is really idol worship. Have you ever considered worrying can be idol worship? Because it can choke out the gospel. You start spending more time and energy on the worries than you do on the gospel. That's what idol worship is. So some of you, well, I just worry about my kids. I just worry about them. I can't help. I just worry about it. And you act like that's a virtue. That's kind of a Minnesota thing. Like worrying is a virtue. Like, ah, uh, my kids, I'm just worried about them all the time. I just, you know, this. What are you doing? Do you know what that is? Let me identify that for you. That's idol worship. You are worshiping something more than allowing the gospel to take root and grow to maturity. That's what worrying is. Do you sit around worrying about our country right now? Now, should we be concerned about our country? Yes. But if you sit around worrying about it and it becomes deliberate, like you're deliberate, what's the word I'm looking for? The debilitated. I'm not sure what the other word was. If you are de debilitated by worry for our country, thinking that everything's just terrible, everything's gone, gone crazy, and there's no hope, and all this kind of stuff, if that's you, if you are living there right now, you're worshiping an idol. We have hope in the good news of the Word of God. That's what's to take root and to grow. Not this, this worry thing. And I, I've heard some people say, well, that's why we say that you, you, know, you shouldn't be fearful. Yes, you shouldn't be fearful. But that can also become uh, an idol. Like, we should just disobey everybody. 
No, no, that's not what we're talking about either. We're talking about the gospel taking root in such a way that that's where maturity comes from. Not these other weeds. Not these other worries. And by the way, not these other riches and pleasures. I, I love how Jesus uses worries and then riches and pleasures. Like he, he gives us both sides of the spectrum. Did you see that? Oh, there's nothing to worry about. I've got everything taken care of. My 401k looks great. Did you know that the, the S&P hit a new high the other day? Everything's great. It, it's, Jesus gives us both sides of this. Do you see that? The gospel is not to take second place of anything in our life. Worries or pleasures. Poorness or richness. And then, verse 15. By the seed, but the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. And the good soil, these are the people whose hearts are noble because the word of God has come into them and they have allowed it to penetrate to deep their root. They have kept the weeds out and it has grown to maturity. The good news The word of God has taken root and has grown to maturity. In other words, you have changed. You are different on the inside and that difference comes to the outside. That's what that is. That's what good soil is. And of course, examples of this in the book of Luke, they're all over. Think about the centurion, the Gentile centurion. A faith that was so mature that he didn't even need Jesus to show up. You Remember that? And think about, think about the shady tax collector, Levi, who left it all and followed Jesus. Think about the unnamed woman from last week who didn't say a word, but her sins were forgiven. These are people who allowed the gospel to be sown in their heart, who didn't have preconceived rocks in their heart, who didn't allow other things, other idols to grow up around it. They just allowed the gospel to grow. Powerful words. Powerful story. And now, the end. This is where pastors say something like this. Whenever pastors preach on this sermon, they say, so what kind of soil is in your heart? I've said that before in a sermon on this. I've used that as my clincher. My... But you've heard that already. It's an important question. Yes, what kind of soil is in your heart? Do you have some weeds that you need to chop down. I always wonder if Jesus would modify this parable today because we have Roundup that kills the weeds, but the gospel grows. I think the church is supposed to be Roundup. and That's, that's an analogy gone too far, maybe? Is that too far? The gospel's like Roundup ready? I don't know. I tried it. It's not, not working. What can we take from this passage that will help us understand how to do this for real? My final thought today, to make that happen, is something that you maybe have never thought about regarding this parable. I want to maybe introduce you to something new. In fact, I might even say that what I'm going to say next is probably a misunderstanding that most of you have about this parable that has never been confronted. I think the church today has a warped view of this parable in this one way. You ready for this? Knowing if a seed will grow is not usually instantaneous. When a farmer plants seed, 
it takes time to know if the seed will grow and mature and produce fruit. Now, this seems really simple, doesn't it? But think about this. I mean, when I was in elementary school, we did that project where you, you take a styrofoam cup and you put some dirt in, you put a seed in, and then you put it in the window, right? So I remember doing that project. Most elementary students do this. And I remember the first week, I, I would run in the morning, I would run and go check my seed, right? And I would look in there, and nothing happened. It was just dirt. So I'd put some water on it, and I'd stick it back in the window. The next morning, I would run to the window, I would grab it, and I would check it, and nothing happened. So for about the first week, I was super excited to see this seed, this plant sprout, right? But after about a week, I stopped running quite so fast every morning. And in the second week, I, I checked it maybe twice. Dirt. Just dirt. Just my luck, I probably have a faulty seed. That's what I was thinking. I probably got the dud. That would explain it, right? So by the third week, I was like, you know, whatever. If it grows, it grows. Whatever. And of course, by the fourth week, guess what? My seed didn't grow. Well, I hadn't watered it in two and a half weeks, but hey, right? I, I didn't have this one key ingredient about growing seeds. What is that one key ingredient that you need to make seeds grow? Patience. This is the part that I think we get wrong as Christians whenever we think about this parable. Patience. Can we look one more time at the last verse in this section? Verse 15. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. Do you see that final word, those final words? By persevering, produce a crop. Now, that's the NIV. This comes through much more clearly in, a, in other versions of the Bible. So I want to show you from the Good News Bible. It says, The seeds that fell in good soil stand for those who hear the message and retain it and in a good and obedient heart and they persist until they bear fruit. Are you able to go to that one, Heidi? It's the next one. I might have the wrong one. Luke 8.15. Yeah, the good news one. Okay, go to the next one. There you go, the message. But the seed in the good earth, these are the good hearts who seize the word and hold on no matter what. Sticking with it until there's a harvest. Then go to the next one, Heidi. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Well, I'm trying to get across this idea. Patience is required. Patience is required. Now this is what we skip, especially in our brand of the church. Because here's what we do. We are really concerned about getting people to the point of salvation. We just got to get them saved. We just, we just got to, we, we got to get them to that point of salvation. And then that turns into bad theology. You just got to get your ticket punched, you see, and then you're good. Just get them to that moment of salvation and you're good. You're done. We can move on. But that is not what is here. You see, in the Greek, the word for patience, it is literally the last word in the sentence in Greek. 
It's like literally the last thing Jesus said in the parable of the sower, literally the last word is patience. It's not immediate. So this idea of what happens in the heart when the gospel is planted. We sometimes get frustrated because we we tell the gospel to somebody and they don't accept it right away. Or it doesn't seem like things are working. Or they, they seem to accept the gospel, then it seems like there's rocks in the way. Or it seems like there's weeds. And we just get frustrated. Sometimes we get frustrated with ourselves, And we just say, ah, oh, I, I must be the weedy soiler. I must be the rocky. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lost cause. Patience. Patience. Consistency. That is holiness. A consistency of character. A consistency of the gospel going deep. And when that happens, when that patient consistency happens, fruit is produced. We are so concerned sometimes with getting people saved that we've taken the patience out of the equation. Because, heaven forbid, someone might come to Christ as a process, not as a moment. I've had Christians tell me, you, your salvation has to take place in one moment or it's not salvation. Really? Have you read the parable of the sower? Well, there has to be a moment when you're not a Christian and then you become a Christian. There has to be a moment of salvation. Okay, I understand the reasoning, but what about the parable of the sower? It is the patient, consistent living out of the good news of God's word that produces salvation. You know, there's the word, this word in Greek, it's only in the Gospel of Luke two places. Two places. The other place is Luke 21, 19. By standing firm, you will gain life. What does that does that sound to you like by having an immediate moment and only a moment you will gain life? You see that by standing firm? The word standing firm there in Greek is the same exact word for patience in the parable of the sower. And that's the only two places that Greek word is used in the Gospel of Luke. Standing firm, a lifestyle of consistently following Jesus Christ is what brings about salvation. We are a holiness church. We believe that it actually matters how we live. Not that we're saved by how we live, but when we live for Christ consistently with patience, fruit is produced. That's how. Now I know that doesn't fit easily on a gospel tract, does it? Because we really just want it to be a, you do this, you say this prayer, and bam, you're it. It is a patient process, the kind of process that a plant grows like. And if you don't like that, you need to bring it up with Jesus. It's his parable. So, how are you doing? How is the process going? Are there weeds that you do need to chop down? Have you thought about this as an event instead of a process? And do you need to repent of that? Do you need to think about this not as 
I've repented so I'm good and now I can do my own thing? Or have you thought about this as, I am a process like a growing plant? The words of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for this parable. Thank you for the women who are in the introductory parable, the introductory paragraph to this parable. Thank you, God, for having that in there. This this example of patience, this example of fruit, they they had tangible fruit. They They were tangibly giving out of their own pockets for the ministry to continue. Fruit. God, we want to be a church where there's fruit. We want to be a church where our hearts are good soil. Maybe some of us here need to do some weed cutting. Maybe some of us here need to do some rock removal. Do we need to get some stuff out of the way? Some preconceived notions? Things that we hold so dear that we won't look at your word? God, we need you. We need you to do soil preparation of our hearts. We need to respond to you with openness. And when we do, Lord, the potential for growth is exponential. We love you. We desire you. Help us, God, to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen. And the final word is this. If you had trouble with the 30 minutes a day, giving yourself stillness, it's a process. I'm not surprised you had trouble. Did you expect it to work right away? Did you expect to just go right away? Patience. Try again this week. You're dismissed.